from our studios around the world, this is Eat Well, Travel Better, the Business of Food Travel podcast. Every month, we bring you the world's culinary tourism industry professionals and share with you strategies, tactics, and information that help make you a more effective leader, communicator, and professional in our culinary tourism industry. I'm your host, Eric Wolf. Thanks for listening. Matricia, thanks so much for joining us today. I am really excited to be speaking with you. When someone there in Canada contacted me and suggested that we invite you to speak on our podcast, I had a look at your background and I thought, wow, this woman is terrific. She's fantastic. You you have accomplished so much. You're such an amazing woman. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm always happy to meet and greet people from other places and spaces. And if we're talking about information in an Indigenous sense, that's sort of my tagline to uh, Indigenize people one drumbeat at a time. Well, I think that the topic is very timely. The history of Indigenous peoples, and if you consider the Indigenous cuisines and so on, I know Indigenous cuisines are starting to come to the forefront right now. People are becoming more aware of them. They're more curious about what the First Peoples ate, the First Nations peoples ate. And we're, we're, we're starting to learn. We're, we're growing. We are learning more about the different First Nations peoples um, all around the world. And it's time for you to tell your story. So we're here to listen. Well, I'm glad you are because we uh, definitely are feeling safer as time goes on and we do have like information to share. And I think that's been a bit of a paradigm shift, whereas in the past people were so busy telling us what to do. And now we have people who come to us and say, what can you teach us? And that's a totally different way of communicating. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Help me and the other listeners to understand. I understand that you're originally from Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation, which is in way north Alberta province, and you live in Jasper right now. Is that right? Yes. The area that I'm from is by Grand Prairie Valley View. It's pretty, I guess, like, I think it's um, pretty north, but it's actually pretty central, I guess, in in Alberta. But I live more central. I live uh, south of that particular area in the Rocky Mountains. The area that I live in gets a phenomenal amount of visitors a year, almost 2 million visitors. So I share my knowledge pretty widely with people all over the world, even though I do travel myself a lot. Um, as an ambassador for different organizations. Uh, For the summer months, I'm primarily in Jasper and people come to see me and experience some of the, as a tourism tourism operator, one of the things that I do is I offer uh, experiences. And a lot of them are actually, two of them are primarily food-based experiences. Well, you live in a beautiful part of the province. I was in Alberta for the first time back in, I guess it was 2008 or 2009, and we were asked to do the first culinary tourism strategy for the province. So we spent time in Edmonton and Calgary and uh, the Jasper Banff area and created a, a strategy. And that's when I also came to understand more about the different food products and, and things in the province. But I'll have to say at that time, Indigenous was not on the radar. And that was clearly a major oversight in the strategy and the planning at that time. But now it's come to the forefront. Can you tell us a little bit more about what does Indigenous cuisine mean? You know, that's a great question because it really depends on where you're from. And because, I mean, we're talking Alberta, but I mean, if we were talking Canada uh, as a whole, Indigenous people use what they have around them. So if you're on the West Coast 
to the East Coast, that's obviously going to be seafood and or fish. As you get closer to the interior, you're going to be doing more wheat products, more animal-based uh, products. And if you're going to the north, for instance, then you're going to be doing seal and or caribou, arctic char, even uh, whale. You're, it really depends on where you're from, what you're going to be eating. Here in Alberta, we're known for Alberta beef. But before we were Alberta beef, we were the Great Plains. And what was on the Great Plains was millions and millions of buffalo. So when I think of what my family would have ate traditionally, it would have been buffalo, it would have been elk, it would have been muskox, it would have been rabbit. And there's a huge sort of foraging and harvesting that uh, goes on even still with our community today. And part of that is the indigenous teas that we collect. And our indigenous teas are medicinal, herbal, organic, and it's just a time-honored way of sitting with the plant relatives and uh, and healing ourselves through this uh, ability to be able to take what we need from nature and incorporate it into our diet. It's very interesting. And I understand that you know a lot about the the native herbs and so on. What could you tell us about native herbs? Because I think people are always looking for the next exciting health remedy or the next exciting undiscovered ingredient. But more importantly, what can you tell us about herbs, perhaps some things that some native treatments or something that the very fast paced scientific world has perhaps overlooked? You know, I, I love that you said it's you know, the next new undiscovered thing. When we talk about uh, Indigenous medicines, we're talking about Indigenous people that have been on Turtle Island, which we know as North America, for almost 10,000 years. Mm-hmm. And especially in Jasper, they have found arrowheads and spearheads that they've time dated for at least eight to 12,000 years. So Indigenous people have been in this particular province for a very long time. And we have had this beautiful relationship with the plant relatives and the animals. And uh, and we've been able to use both the animals and the plant relatives to heal ourselves, to perform ceremony, what people might think mm-hmm. of as sort of new herbal medicine is actually a time-honored way of healing ourselves with what we could find around us. Talking about that, we could just take something very simple like willow. And willow, we have 32 different kinds of willow in Alberta, and willow grows around the uh, water areas, and it has a particular ingredient in it that's called salicylic acid. Now, salicylic acid is pretty easy to get. It's actually not that expensive. And so I said to my elder, I said, Why would I take time out of my day to go harvest willow when I can just go to the pharmacy and buy aspirin, which is actually not that expensive? And her answer was to make some willow tea. So she had to turn on the pot and let it boil. And we had this conversation and then she got out the mugs and then she put the willow in the in the water and it it took time. And during that time, we had conversation. And during that conversation, you know, I waited for the water to boil, and then we had to wait for it to steep. And then we added, you know, different sweeteners and talked about which sweeteners were. And then we went and sat outside because it was such a lovely day. And we're sitting outside on the porch, and we're drinking this beautiful willow tea. And she said, you know, Matricia, humans are so good at taking something and extracting what we think is the important ingredient. In this case, it would be salicylic acid, which is the pain relief. But she said the creators put it together in this beautiful format, which we don't even have to change very much. Actually, we just went out and cut the willow into little discs and we took two discs and that's what we put into our willow tea. There's more than just the salicylic acid in the willow. You know, there's the pith, there's the bark. It's put into a package 
that in its entirety is meant to be utilized. We weren't meant just to take what we think is the important thing out of it. Just sitting there and having that 15 minute time with my elder in the sun and drinking that warm tea, that was medicine too. It wasn't just, when we think of medicine, I think in our everyday language, we're thinking of healing something that's broken or fixing something within our body. But medicine in an indigenous way of thinking is healing our body, our mind and our spirit. And there isn't any part of that that's more important. It's just like the braid of grass, our sweet grass that we braid and the way that we braid our hair. Three strands to it, there's body, there's mind and there's spirit. And when we're ingesting that tea, we're really thinking of a preventative way of life so that we don't get sick. And we believe that if we align our body and our mind and our spirit, that we won't get sick. So our medicines are meant not just as an herbal preparation, but as a way of life. That is really insightful. I mean, you've taught me something already here today, and I really cherish that. That's fantastic because I think apart from the ingredient in the willow that helps the pain relief, which that's going back to what I was saying before, the everybody wants the next undiscovered thing, but it was also equally important in what you described was the communion of sitting with another person and sharing a story and and relaxing and not going at 90 miles an hour all the time, just sitting down and, and appreciating life. Well, exactly. And, you know, we really noticed this during COVID because if we have to take away one thing that really helps us strengthen as a, as a society, it's relationship. And the one thing that we weren't able to do over COVID was to have a relationship right? So we had to individualize ourselves. We had to stay away from our friends. We had to kind of hermit. And during this time, people really found value in things like farm to table, right? They went back to baking bread and tending their gardens and living in their homes and their spaces and making their own meals again. And it became like a very important thing to be like, well, where's my food coming from? I want to know, like, you know, I'm going to get sick from this. Remember, we were washing our groceries even. So there was this whole thing where people were just feeling better by getting outside and tending to their gardens. So a lot of people think we don't have relationship, but we do. When you're out gardening, you're having a relationship with your plant relatives. And this isn't something that our current society really honors. But in indigenous culture, you know, we thank the willow for its medicine. We thank the the herbs that we grow in our garden for medicine. We thank the tobacco, we thank the sage, we thank the sweet grass, we thank the corn, we thank the beans because they're giving themselves up for our body and for our medicine. And it's that is a relationship. And so I would tell my friends, like, if you can't hug a person, go out and hug a tree because that's a musha mystique. That is your grandfather medicine that you're getting. We have forgotten what that relationship is like and in allowing people to actually not find the next thing, but just respect what is already around them, then they're creating relationship with their environment. And if you're creating relationship with your environment, you're not going to wreck it. Yeah. Well, we we discovered the same thing from our research during COVID that that people were cooking more at home. They were asking their their parents and their grandparents for recipes or cookbooks or how did grandma make those holiday cookies, that kind of thing. And people were taking one day at a time 
and they were really cherishing what was important to them. And it, it's almost like Mother Nature forced us to slow down. We, we couldn't do anything else. And so Mother Nature mm-hmm. had a way of correcting the planet, if you will, correcting our, our pace as a society. I mean, COVID also showed us that it's not healthy to be in these massive environments where we're all together as a unit or we're sharing things or we're in an environment where we're not actually eating anything that we've harvested or picked ourselves. Even 200 years ago in Canada, we didn't have pharmacy. We didn't have grocery. You know, you would be going down to your local farmer's markets. You know, when your grandparents were making a salad, they'd go outside to get the ingredients. They wouldn't go to the supermarket. We have traded this lifestyle of convenience at a detriment to our our health. Mm-hmm. And at a time when we actually need to be healthy because we're doing more, we actually are doing more and, and not taking care of our bodies and being as nutritionally efficient as we could. And COVID certainly shined a spotlight on that. And then also the supply chain kind of failed. I don't know about other parts of the world, but I know in Alberta, it was really hard to get certain things at certain times. You maybe couldn't rely on getting all of the ingredients that you would normally need. So then you would start to look around at what was locally available. And even with the economy right now, the cost of food has gone way up. The World Food Travel Association is the world's leading authority on food and beverage tourism. Founded in 2001, each year we serve a community of 200,000 professionals in more than 150 countries. Thinking about a career change because of the pandemic or looking to improve your current skills? Consider our bespoke training and certification programs in culinary tourist guiding, culinary tour operations, restaurant and food service, and culinary destination marketing. Visit academy.worldfoodtravel.org to learn more and get started. And I noticed also what went way up was everybody started hunting again here in Alberta. And that's because for the cost of a license or as Indigenous people, we don't actually need to to apply for a license, but we can harvest um, a deer, um, a moose for a lot cheaper when we do our own work than we would if we were going to the store and buying packaged beef right now, which is really expensive. Let's shift gears for just a minute. And I would like to talk about your journey from the Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation down to Jasper. What prompted you to make the move? And did you have to overcome any preconceived notions or any personal challenges or hurdles in order to to make that move? Yes, my uh, mother ended up committing suicide. And that left eight children ranging from about two to about uh, 19 and we were all put into foster care and we were kind of all split up for a period of time. And then my brother and myself were adopted to a totally different family in Calgary. And my fam, like my family that I have now, my mother is English and my dad is um, of German descent. So they weren't indigenous. And, and I remember being adopted. So that's not usually that prevalent either. They have been an amazing family to grow up with. I mean, we've grown as a family and we understand it's called the 60 scoop now and so i was financially compensated for that this year but about 20 years ago when i was raising my own family you know your kids 
are definitely a reflection of yourself. And they started asking questions about, you know, what it what it means to be Indigenous. In this way, I had to rely on the people in my community that I was um, more central at that time. And I had a really good connection with some Indigenous elders and Indigenous community. And I just started reaching out and then I started, I guess, re-Indigenizing myself, or maybe the better word would be that I was decolonizing myself. And because my partner was Métis and we were living on a farm, it was really easy for us to like grow our own food, have a micro farm, really do farm to table. And then also paired with the work that I was doing with the Indigenous community at the time was also indigenizing myself. So that's kind of where I, I landed. And then it got to the point over a 20-year period, I realized that I was in the position to start passing that information on myself. And being in Jasper with people coming from all over the world and also being in a safe place where I was supported by Indigenous tourism, I was able to then take the knowledge that I have and turn it into experiences that uh, the visitor can come and, and do an Indigenous plant walk or do a, an Indigenous tea experience or just sit around a fire and have a chat about my journey, their journey, in a way that creates relationship and reconciliation. As a keeper of knowledge, let's let's talk about that a little bit now. You clearly have a lot of experience when it comes to the indigenous plants and the herbs. We've talked about that. I know that you've been involved with making things like tinctures and so on. How how did you become an expert in all of these things? I mean, I, I, it could not have been easy. There's, so, there's hundreds and thousands of plants to, to memorize and learn about. Yeah. So, I mean, I have done my share of memorization and I have done my share of plants, but really it started when I was young and it started with my mother who adopted me. And even though she might not be indigenous, she was the first person who held a buttercup under my chin to see if I liked butter, showed me the, um, she just has a beautiful love of the outdoors. She loves roses. She loves fireweed. And she just knew all of the flora that was around the area. And that just was really exciting for me as a child. We, you know, we used to pick the rose petals and, you know, make our own tonics and and make our own face washes and you know really it was kind of like a, a perfume and we actually spent a lot of time in in an area where my parents built their own cabin we didn't have running water we were really living out with very little outside kind of presence or we didn't even, we didn't even have running water had an outdoor bathroom so it was pretty close to nature and you really get to experience sort of like a wonder of that and then as i got older that love of plants never really left i always had a huge garden that was able to feed my family and it was funny because i was getting my daughter to help me and not my daughter's 28 she's older she was just uh, down for the weekend and she was helping me clear like with the harvest and i said oh do you remember our big garden in edson she said of course i remember our big garden in edson she said i i remember that you used to plant edible peas and used to do it in a teepee that ted and i could sit under and she said and some of those memories are some of the happiest of my childhood and that really arrested me because out of all the things that I was able to provide to my kids, going out and working in the garden was something that, you know, you kind of had to do with the weeding. And so then I just made it also fun for my children. But I didn't actually think that would be such a prevalent memory for her out of all of the things that they got to do. And they were in like lots of different activities and, you know, we traveled all over the world. But one of her favorite memories is, is helping me in the garden, which I think really shows that we discount our children 
with these activities and that some of the most simplistic activities are the ones that they're going to remember when they grow up and they're the ones that are associated with nature. And how are you passing that information down to the younger generation now? Uh, my daughter's a painter and uh, she did this beautiful, uh, she's a big mural painter. There was, uh, she was uh, doing a mural for the university hospital. And I said, what is that on the side? And she said, oh, those are the plants. I always have the plants in my paintings. I just realized how much of my love of plants has infused into the next generation as well. It's just, I think it's so much part of our culture because we already consider the plants our relatives. We already have that relationship with them. When she is with me, you know, I'm, I'm always either harvesting or foraging or growing or processing. In this way, she's witnessing this transformation of something that is free on the ground to pick. And then she sees me make it into, you know, these beautiful infusions. And I was at her house the other day and I said, what is this? I picked up this bottle. It was $27. Oh, she said, I just love to put lavender syrup in my tea. And I said, you paid $27 for this? She said, yeah. So last time she was home. In Jasper, I got my lavender out and I boiled it with the sugar and I made her a bottle of lavender uh, simple syrup. And she was just shocked. She said, is that all it takes to make simple syrup? And I said, yeah, it's just not that hard. I said, you don't have to pay $27 for that bottle anymore. I said, I'll just make you simple syrup. Or I said, you saw me do it. This is how easy it is. And that, not only that, like lavender is so medicinal for you as well, you know? It's such a powerful aromatic. It makes you feel good when you drink it. It obviously tastes great. And then it, you know, it adds, you know, that plant medicine into your tea. It's just allowing her to see this process of what can be added to her life. I think that how we pass it on to the next generation, they just witness. That's fantastic to, to learn about that. I do, though, I have to question $27 for a bottle of lavender syrup. That's a bit excessive. That really is. <laughs> I know. I couldn't believe it. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it either. I've made simple syrup. When I was living in Portland, I was known for the rose martini. And we used to go to a neighbor's house and they had organic rose bushes. They didn't use any pesticides at all. And we would take the petals from the rose bushes and then we would put them on a light boil, on, you know, a simmer with the yeah. sugar. And after a few minutes, they, you would have this lovely steep rose flavor. And then mm -hmm. you would just mix it with, oh, I guess we used maybe was one third vodka. Well, I was going to probably do it the other way around, but one third, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, I guess you can tell what my priorities are. But um, anyway, <laughs> mixed to taste. Let's just say mixed to taste. And we were trying to make that cocktail the quintessential cocktail of Portland. But yeah it was really an easy thing to make and it was all natural mm -hmm. and organic. It was, it was a fantastic mm -hmm. product. And, and you're well, a good just, mom for doing that. Well, and just the idea of like picking the roses, cooking, putting it into a simple syrup and then making a drink out of it like that. It's not like getting your diploma at university. Uh, you know, it's the four year journey, right? And in this way, it's not just having the, the drink, it's the entire process. And you never really do that process alone. You know, you're always doing it with somebody else or it's part of a group or people are interested in what's happening. What are you doing picking the roses? Oh, you have roses I can pick? You know, there's a conversation that happens. It's a bigger way of utilizing these plant relatives 
in a good way because if we don't pick those petals they're just going to compost into the ground which is fine but they have medicine that they can also provide to us right and in alberta our flower of alberta is the wild rose so we have a beautiful relationship with the rose we have wild rose all over alberta we use it for tinctures we use it for flavoring we use the rose hip we have indigenous legends around the wild rose it, it has a beautiful name, actually. It's, uh, it's called Mikosquani. I love the etymology of language, especially in Indigenous languages, because they're very verb-based, so they're always very descriptive. But my plant, the word for, for flowers, Wapakwanis. So the Kwani is the flower portion, and the Mikos, Mikos means blood, but it actually means red, too. So it's the blood oh. red flower. And I know, isn't that a beautiful description for the flower of our Alberta? You know, the Wapakwani, you know, the Mikosquani. That really is. That's amazing. Uh, talk mm-hmm. about illustrative language that just says what it is, right? I mean, that's yeah. that's a fantastic description. One thing I'd, I'd like to, to bring up, Matricia, when we were talking before the show, I was sharing with you our history here at the Association of, of trying to engage with Indigenous peoples. And we had really had a, a hard time reaching out to, to different peoples. I remember when I was living in Portland back in 2001, I was trying to work on some, an initiative called Cascadian Cuisine. And we tried to reach out to different Native tribes in both Oregon and Washington. And it just fell on deaf ears. No, we wouldn't even get responses from emails or phone calls. No one wanted anything to do with us. And then it really wasn't until about 2018 when we started speaking with a woman named Dana Thompson, who works with the Sioux Chef in South Dakota. And she spoke at one of our Food Treks Summit events. And the topic that we asked her to talk about was Indigenous cuisine. She was even a little hesitant to speak at our event, but eventually she did. And we, we really tried hard to ensure her that our interest was was genuine, that we were coming at this from a respectful place, and we wanted to learn. I would like to hear a little bit from from your background and how, the things that you've experienced. I know that racism is a thing, and uh, you were explaining why the, the Native peoples weren't responding to me, and it just it kills me. But I guess, you know, it is a thing. So could you explain how you experienced this and maybe um, explain a little bit about why the Native peoples responded the way they did, and then maybe give a prognosis for, for where things are headed? I'm going to do this the way that I do it best. I'm going to share a story with you. Okay. So my daughter, Mackenzie, works with um, Indigenous tourism. But, I mean, she didn't start that way. She started out with a program and she was paired with a government official and it was part of a of a government program and, and they were going they, and they were started this was you know 5 years ago they wanted to get more indigenous providers into tourism so we're going from a government perspective so her job was to create relationships with the indigenous people to get them into indigenous tourism so her boss gave her a list of indigenous groups and said can you get a hold of these individuals and uh, see if you can get them into the tourism base. So Mackenzie looked at the group and she said, yeah, okay. So three days went by and her boss phones her and says like, how's, how are things going? I'm just checking in. And she goes, yeah, I'm just in Enoch. And he's like, what are you, what are you doing in Enoch? And she's like, well, I'm just meeting with the chief and council. I, I mean, you know, I'm going over the proposal and he's like, what? And she's like, yeah. And how do I, I need to get some money back for all of the money I spent on tobacco. And her boss was like, what? She's like, yeah, I'd go and buy like, you know, $400 worth of tobacco. So for offerings, how do I reimburse that? And he's like, Mackenzie, you don't have a budget. 
you don't have a travel budget either. Like, yeah. And she's like, well, I was just going to, you know, fill out the reimbursement form, but I don't know how to access it. So he's like, you need to come back to the office. We need to have a discussion. <laughs> he said, what? So the discussion went like this. He said, I gave you a list of people to get a hold of. He said, I expected you to sit in the office and phone them. And Mackenzie looked at him and said, this is why you don't have any tourism operators, because that's not how Indigenous people create relationship. Wow. Indigenous people create relationship by you have to look them in the eyes, you have to give them tobacco, and you have to sit at the table and explain. You have to go to them. She said, who do Indigenous people distrust the most? The government, because they've broken the treaties over and over and over again because of systemic racism, because of fear. So if you saw a government as an Indigenous person, if you saw a government phone number on your phone, you might not even answer it. Yeah. Or you might answer it and think, what do they want from us now? Like, what, what, do I, what else do I have to give up? Like, I've given everything up, and now what do they want? What Mackenzie was doing as an Indigenous person was she understood protocol, she understood relationship, which means you create relative, and she was creating relationship by going to the communities and meeting the people that make the decisions and explaining what the government was trying to do. But the government was expecting her to sit in her office and make phone calls, which is what they had done traditionally, but wasn't working. So when we're talking about relationship with indigenous people, you really have to think out of the box because they may not want to come to you. You may have to go to them. And if you are going to them to ask them for something, you have to understand what their protocol is. Is it customary to bring them a gift? Is it customary to, and is this all going to be, you know, be outside your budget perhaps? You also have to be able to create a space for them that's going to be safe. So when people share their information about indigenous food, I can't go into the grocery store and buy my indigenous food. I can't buy my buffalo at the store. I can't buy my elk. I can't buy my moose. I can't buy my muskox or rabbit. I can't get my bitterroot or my tinctures or any of those kind of things. So I have to explain to people where I forage and where I harvest, and I have to tell people that I do traditional hunting. And not everybody agrees with those practices, right? But those are things that I have been doing for thousands of years. But we're also afraid to show people where our medicines are because we've been shown that through history, when Indigenous people share what the knowledge that they have, that it gets taken away from us. So those are all things we have to think about when we're trying to forge a relationship with an Indigenous person. So Dana Thompson was very brave when she walked through the door, opened the door, because you never know what kind of relative you're going to let in when you open yeah. the door. And I do think she felt that we did right by her, but I, this was an interesting lesson in cross-cultural communication. And that's actually something I studied for my master's degree. But here I was <laughs> failing at it when I was living in Portland because I, I didn't know how to do outreach properly to the Native peoples. Exactly. There's a different kind of process. And uh, if somebody is afraid of you, they might not want to meet you halfway. You're going to have to do the three quarter thing. You know, you're going to have to go to them. Right. Yeah. And even if you're giving them what you may feel like is an opportunity, it can feel like a platform where they're going to get feedback and it might not necessarily be good feedback. And, and that's frightening as well. Yeah, I can only imagine. Do, do you prefer First Nations or Indigenous or Native? How, what do you prefer? Yeah, so terminology is important. Um, in Canada here, we kind of uh, use the two terms, First Nation and Indigenous, and those seem to be sort of the most open uh, words that we have right now. But some 
people still use native, but uh, I find it's not used as as often or outside circles that aren't indigenous. Would you say that things are becoming more open and that there's more mutual understanding or, or are we not there yet? I think there's a lot of work to do, but I think that people are walking down the road. I mean, the more relationships we have, the more relatives we make with each other. I mean, we're really at a place in a space where people are asking for our knowledge. And that's a little bit scary and it's a little bit different than what we've um, had in the past. And so, you know, we're just dipping our feet in the water. But so far, like the people that I've uh, shared information with, it's really just information that's universal. You know, our Indigenous way of living is very land-based, is very water-based, is very animal-based. And in this way of sort of being symbiotic with relationship with, with, with the land, we also become natural caregivers because it's such a way of life for us. You don't really know who, who's a friend and who's a foe. And so when someone is asking, you know, we, oh, tell us about your culture. Tell us about your plants and your herbs. I would be asking me just because I'm, I'm interested. I, I want to learn something about you. And this is important to you. And that's why I would ask it. But you don't know that someone else that's asking you isn't working for a pharmaceutical company that's trying to find the next cure for something and is going to go in and raid all your precious areas. Well, exactly. Where I live in the Rocky Mountains is actually a huge area and it's protected. You can't actually pick anything in the Rocky Mountains unless you're First Nations. So, I mean, there is that um, expectation of, uh, of safeguarding that area and, and the area that I'm from, Jasper, is known as the medicine bundle of Turtle Island. So there's a lot of um, flora there that you can't find anywhere else uh, just because of the, the level of the Rocky Mountains and the microclimates that, that they produce. But I mean, most of Canada is covered by the boreal forest, about uh, 75%. And uh, that's the one thing that we don't have in Jasper is we don't have the boreal forest. So we have to go out um, a little bit further, about an hour to get our cedar uh, and other types of plants. But within our particular area, we have um, just the most beautiful flora. We have a beautiful plant that grows just along the lakes and it has a beautiful name. It's called uh, Amisco Pasqua. So Amisco is the beaver and Pasqua is the grass and it's good tasting beaver grass, but you might know it as wild mint. Oh, wow. That, <laughs> I, I, I definitely prefer your renaming or original name for, for what it is. That's so much more colorful. You learn so much about that. I mean, good tasting beaver grass means that not only does it grow by the water, but that the beavers enjoy it as well and that it's good tasting. And I pass this plant around when I show people and they're always so shocked because they, as soon as they smell it, they know what it is, but they didn't realize that the plant that was growing all around the lake was something as simple as mint. And in this way, they're able to, you know, we, I call it plant blindness, but you know, if there was a bear or a fox, people always exclaim and notice that, but you can get the same reaction with plants. Once you put those plant uh, glasses on people and they are able to just see, and there's a real reaction. Like people will actually step onto the path and be like, oh, I'm stepping all over the mint but they didn't realize it was there until I pointed it out. So it's lovely to see people um, respecting their environment once they understand it. 
Well, I think it's great that you're not revealing all your your cards to to everybody who asks. I remember when I lived in Portland, there was a woman who would go harvest huckleberries on the side of Mount Hood, and she made the most amazing huckleberry pies. But if you asked her where to get the huckleberries, she wouldn't say. She just would oh, keep no. it keep completely close to her chest and said, well, you know, that's, that's a family secret. We can't share that. And good thing that she did, because otherwise people would have, have just cleaned the bushes, stripped and bare. Part of foraging isn't having a roadmap to where to go. Foraging is in the journey. It's like going up and down those roads and checking out to see where the best places for berries are. And then rejoicing when you find those berry bushes. And then after having gone through all that work, you don't necessarily want to let other people know where that cache is because it's up to them to discover it. You know, I wouldn't plant peas in my garden and then expect people to, you know, stumble upon them and then pick them all, right? Like there's a certain amount of work that goes into growing and harvesting. And there's also a certain amount of work that goes into foraging. Indigenous people, like I said, you know, we have helped in the past and that hasn't worked out (laughs) for us and so i mean we do keep our secrets and our knowledge and uh and our berry patches close to our our hearts because of that reason well matricia if you could go back in time and give your younger self some advice what would you tell yourself i think i would tell myself to not be afraid that that everything's going to work out in the end and that we have a beautiful word in our culture it's called to wow and to wow it means welcome is what we tell everybody it means but to wow actually means that there is room so it doesn't mean just physical room or you know this room on the zoom or podcast but it means room in our hearts and our minds and our spirit i think that a lot of decisions that i've made in my life have been fear-based And I Mm -hmm. think I'd like to tell my younger self to be brave, that there is room. Well, there's room, but you know what? There's also a willing ear at the other end. There's, There's someone willing and waiting to hear what you have to say. You just have to find that person. Definitely. I definitely think that. And that can even be yourself. It can be yourself or it can be the audience of our podcast, for instance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, of course. Yeah. So these are all like good lessons to take home and think about, right? It's not Indigenous uh, cuisine isn't just about Indigenous food, but it's about a way of life and how we live symbiotically with our environment. You know what, Trisha, this is so interesting. I feel like we could talk for hours about this. And I definitely would cherish the the time when we can get together in person, whether it's at World Travel Market in London, or maybe I have a reason to come to Canada. But I, I would love to sit down with you at some point and just listen to a story from you in person. For sure. That's, uh, that's primarily what I do for my business is I tell stories. <laughs> Well, I, I've come to the right person. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. My, yeah, my pleasure. Well, Matricia, it has been truly an honor for me and my listeners to hear what you have to say. I know time is precious and you took an hour out of your day, plus all of the preparation to make this show, this particular interview a success. And I truly acknowledge and appreciate the effort that you put into it to help share your story because you know what? Not everyone is the same in the world and there's many people out there who are genuinely interested in you and your story and the good that you bring to the world. 
Well, thank you very much for giving me a platform to do just that. I do take a lot of pleasure in being able to share my culture, which I haven't always been in a place or a space to be able to do that. And uh, I'm glad that part of my indigeneity has been a healing journey for me as well. Before we just say goodbye, I would like you to say your family name, please, your, your Indigenous name, because I am not even going to try to say it, and it was so beautiful when you said it earlier. Would you do that, please? <laughs> yeah, so my traditional name is Iskowachitawachi. If I was introducing myself, I would say Iskowachitawachi Nitsigatsun Ochunia Jasper. So my name is She Who Moves Mountains, and, uh, and I'm from Jasper. And you are truly a woman who moves mountains. So it's <laughs> if, if the name fits, right? Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Matricia, thank you again. And I do hope our paths cross sooner than later. I'm sure they will. I find people that have a bond over food and harvesting and foraging and always seem to, the circle widens as I go through life and, uh, and they intersect as well. So I'm sure that will happen. Well, thank you again. Thank you. You too. You bet. Bye-bye. That's it for this episode of the Eat Well, Travel Better podcast. This episode is brought to you by the World Food Travel Association and the professional training programs in its academy. We'd like to hear from you. We invite you to share your ideas, questions, and thoughts about the podcast by emailing us at help at worldfoodtravel.org. Or you can connect with us and comment about the episode on major social media platforms. Special thanks to our guest, Patricia Bauer. And our sincere thanks to you for joining us. I'm Eric Wolf, wishing you a safe, happy, and productive month ahead.